Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast which normally tells of dark tales and dastardly deeds from Derbyshire and the Peak District. St Helens in Lancashire, 1987. When I started the podcast, I set a very strict rule for myself. That was that I'd only cover cases from Derbyshire and the Peak District. Before you say anything, I know, sometimes that connection can be a little tenuous, but, well, it's my podcast. I made the rules so I can bend them. Breaking that rule, though, that'd be a step too far, wouldn't it? Today is my wife's birthday, and to mark a special day, I thought I'd do a bit of digging into a case she told me about not long after we met. It's set in St Helens, in Lancashire, in a part of St Helens called Sutton, to be precise. If you're a fan of a certain US mega true crime podcast, it's her hometown murder. It took place while she was at school. And it's a story which, inevitably, she tells with a delicious dollop of local gossip and rumour. After some research, it turns out that while the bare bones of the case she tells it are true, the more unbelievable elements were, well, not to be believed. I don't know about you, but when I get to know someone, I inevitably, eventually, get talking about true crime. And we inevitably eventually start discussing our own local murders. Today is my wife's birthday, and when I was thinking of a present, and because I'm an enormous egomaniac, I thought the perfect gift would be to dedicate to her an episode. St Teresa's Church in Sutton had only been consecrated 10 years by 1970. The building was in the style of pretty much every Catholic church of the period. Brutalist concrete with tall smoke glass windows and a pitched slate roof. In the years that followed their wedding, fundraising had been completed to install stained glass in the tall panes that looked west. But in 1970... It wasn't quite what the bishop had in mind when the idea of a new church was first mooted. In the near 40 years since the laying of the foundation stone, however, a world war which targeted the nearby port of Liverpool had meant that ambitions needed to be a little more modest, a little less basilica. None of that mattered to Glynis Ashcroft, though, as she posed for photographs on the steps with her new husband, Philip. She'd only been in Ashcroft for a couple of minutes, but she liked how it felt, how it sounded. Mrs Ashcroft. Glynis had grown up around the corner on New Street. Her and her twin sister, Pamela, had walked past the church more times than she could remember. Had seen so many blushing brides stood on that very spot, 
arm in arm with her new husband. Now it was her turn, and she really couldn't be happier. Her and Philip had met when he joined the same brass band, the par band, as her and her sister were in. He was a grammar school boy. He'd been to university in London, of all places, but was back in St Helens now, and they were going to start out on their new life together. Philip was training to be a teacher. He had a profession, and a future. They had a future. Mr and Mrs Ashcroft. She did like the sound of that. Spin forward 17 years, to 1987, and life for the couple had settled into a respectable middle-class life that Glenys had dreamt of, living in a respectable semi on Broadway. After finishing his teacher training, Philip had worked for a while in Preston, just 25 miles north of St Helens. Now, though, he was a biology teacher at Sutton High School, and respected for what he did around the school, both in and out of the classroom. He'd brought his interest in music with him to the school, as the teacher in charge of the school brass band. Glyneth too had a job in education, working as a teaching assistant at a primary school, and, to top it all, to complete the picture of middle-class respectability, the couple had been blessed by the child. Rachel had arrived three years earlier, in 1984, completing the picture Glynis had had in her head and heart that day back in 1970 as she stood on the steps of St Teresa's and Sutton as the new Mrs Ashcroft. By the early 90s, Sutton High School had a strong reputation for extracurricular excellence. In 1990, the school's under-13 rhythmic gymnastics team won the national championship. In the September of the same year, the school began opening its doors every Saturday for music practice and tuition. Although based at the school, the music department's facilities and teachers were available to children for miles around, and within months, It had 250 young musicians attending from across the borough, some as young as six years old. A thriving initiative, the programme compromised of 14 individual groups. The St Helens Star described it as a superb example of how a team of dedicated tutors, backed by an enthusiastic supportive group of parents, have created, in a matter of months, an educational arts establishment quite unique in this part of the world. Despite teaching biology, Philip Ashcroft, in the years leading up to the establishment of the Music Department Saturday School, had been an integral part of the school's music community. Brass bands had a long and strong and a celebrated reputation around St Helens, largely as it was an area with strong coal mining heritage. Sutton Colliery closed in 1991, but during the miners' strike in the early 80s, an ideological battle between Thatcher's government and the National Miners' Union of Arthur Scargill, Sutton Colliery developed a reputation as one of the most militant pits in Lancashire, with violence between the forces of the state and its workers a common occurrence. 
Philip Ashcroft joined the teaching staff a year and a half after completing his teacher training in 1980. His subject was biology, but as the teacher with responsibility for the prestigious brass band, he'd not only hold rehearsals and concerts at the school, but also take mixed groups of teenagers to competitions and galas around Lancashire. At the other end of the educational spectrum, Glynis was an equally valued influence, working as a teaching assistant at Wargrove Primary School in nearby Newton Willows. She was respected by her colleagues as she was appreciated by the parents and equally adored by the children. The superstitions surrounded Friday the 13th as an unlucky day, a legion. One theory suggests that Friday is considered unlucky in the Christian tradition because of its association with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You know, Good Friday and all. And the 13th? Well, there were 13 apostles at the Last Supper, with Judas Iscariot being the 13th person, adding to the belief in the Friday and the 13th as unlucky days. The evening of Friday the 13th, March 1987, was dry and crisp and chilly. The cloudless sky was illuminated by a near full moon. The Ashcroft's adjoining neighbour, Mrs Dorothy Parr, pulled the curtains closed to keep in the heat of the fire and keep out the cold of the night. On Wogan that evening, the eponymous host was chatting to David Attenborough about his new series on the Mediterranean. A bit later there was Dynasty, and pretty much the rest of the evening's TV was dominated by the traditional schedule fillers of 1980s Britain. Figure skating and athletics. At some point around nine o'clock, a taxi pulled up in the street outside and loitered before a slamming door and a reverend engine signalled its departure. There'd been some banging and crashing and, for the first time she could remember, raised voices from next door. She could make out both Philip and Glynis shouting. The Ashcrofts and their little dot of a daughter, three-year-old Rachel, were usually very little bother, although, whatever the disturbance was, it had bit short-lived. And anyway, it made a change, a welcome change, from Mr Ashcroft practising his bugle. After that unremarkable night, on that unremarkable street, Dorothy Parr set off to bed and enjoyed an unremarkable sleep. The neighbours on the other side of the Ashcroft's home, the Connor family, were similarly enjoying an unremarkable sleep. However, theirs was broken just after 1am, the reason for which would see their neighbourhood unimaginably devastated. A loud banging on the door shocked Mary Connor from her sleep and drew her downstairs and fumbling with the lock to open it. As the door swung inwards, collapsing at her feet, she found the near-prone Philip Ashcroft, his hands bound behind his back, sticky tape covering his eyes, blood drying and pearled a wound from his head. Taking her kitchen knife from the countertop, Mary cut Philip's hands free, but before she was able to offer any more assistance, he ripped the tape from his eyes and was on his feet, pleading for Mary to call the police before running back to his home, explaining that, I must get back to Rachel to see what they've done to her. In shock, Mary Connor called first his parents and then the police. 
while considering what to do next, banging at the front door revealed a visibly shocked Philip, little Rachel in his arms. Passing the child to Mrs Connor, he begged her to take care of her before disappearing back next door. With the toddler settled down with her own children in comfort, Mary Connor cautiously retraced the journey Philip had made just moments earlier and entered the Ashcross home by the open front door. The sight before her was one of devastation. The lounge was in disarray, with furniture overturned, drawers turned out and paint daubed across the walls. The hallway presented an even more shocking scene. Blood was on the walls, and a weeping and panicked Philip Ashcroft was crouched over the still body of Glennis, desperately administering CPR. Philip begged her to call the ambulance, pointing to the family's own landline phone, which had been yanked from the wall, the cord tangled and torn in the corner of the room. After a reassuring hand was placed on his back, Mary Connor ran back home. When asked later, to recall the night's events, Mary was unable to remember how many times she'd called the emergency services. Three times? Four times? Desperate to summon help. Desperate for someone to come. The police were first on the scene at about 1.40am, followed closely by an ambulance. The flashing lights and sirens woke most of the street, with curtains drew delicately open to a distance that balanced dignifiedly between respect and natural curiosity. Mrs Parr, who lived in the adjoining house, stepped outside to speak to the shivering Mary Connor. What was happening? Was everything okay? At being told that things were far from okay, she remembered the noises from early in the evening, and the taxi, and made a note to bring it up when she spoke to the police. The home was assessed as safe for paramedics to enter. Police confirming that, contrary to first reports that Mrs Ashcroft was laying in the hall, the unconscious and unresponsive Mrs Ashcroft was in fact in her bed in the master bedroom. The morning immediately after the dreadful events that occurred at the Ashcroft's home, Detective Inspector George Dunro assembled his team of detectives from St Helens CID to deliver a first briefing on the case. His initial piece of news was that despite the attempts of paramedics, Mrs Glynis Ashcroft had died as a result of strangulation. Mrs Ashcroft's husband, Philip, had suffered minor injuries in what could be best described as a home invasion. The young couple's daughter was unharmed in the attack and was being cared for by the father's family. Mr Ashcroft, he explained, was in an emotional state, and while his recollections of the attack, which he thought might have involved three men, were sketchy, he'd be interviewed in full that morning. While some neighbours had come forward with information, detectives were instructed to carry out door-to-door inquiries in the area, speak to family and friends, as well as the schools at which both adults taught. A forensic examination of the house had been carried out over the course of the day, with initial findings available late in the evening. 
by the following morning, when the team reassembled for their briefing and update. The preliminary belief that what had occurred was the result of three strangers entering the home had shifted dramatically. They were respectful of the fact that Philip Ashcroft had not only lost his wife, but had also himself been injured in the attack. D.I. George Dunro found his behaviour odd. It's not unusual for those who've lost a loved one to behave in ways that most of us have find strange, but Philip was wheeling through a whole range of emotions. Flitting from anger and agitation to sorrow and desperation, he seemed strangely preoccupied with getting back to school and his work one minute, then the well-being of his daughter the next. His version of events also proved challenging to comprehend. Philip claimed that he'd returned home from band practice at around nine to discover his wife injured in the hallway. Approaching Glynis, he was grabbed from behind, spun round and hit on the head, knocking him unconscious. He then woke some time later, tied to a chair, his feet bound by the cord from the telephone, his eyes stuck closed with tape. After a long struggle to break free from his restraints, he ran next door, hands bound and still blinded by the tape, and alerted Mrs Murray. Witness statements from the neighbours and the forensic investigations threw up some interesting questions though. If Mrs Murray was right that she saw Philip trying to resuscitate his wife at the foot of the stairs, how was it that Glenys was in bed when the police arrived? When questioned, Philip said that in all the chaos he'd forgotten to mention that while he was resuscitating Glenys, he thought she'd benefit from being tucked up beneath the sheets, so dragged her up there to perform CPR. Then there was the scene of the crime itself. While there was no doubting that something had occurred in the home, the ransacking seemed a little superficial. Chairs had been upended, drawers left hanging open. Nothing seemed to have been taken though, nothing as well was really damaged. The paint dubbed on the walls too felt somewhat unnatural. As opposed to having the energy of a random act of fury, it seemed almost applied, avoiding family photographs as well as precious paintings which hung on the walls. Then there were the recollections of Mrs Parr, the neighbour on the other side from the Ashcrofts, from Mrs Cooper. She was adamant that around nine she'd heard an argument between Philip and Glenys, during which bangs and a smash had occurred, not to mention that loitering taxi at around the same time. What did Philip make of that? Whether by training, experience or a combination of both, most police officers assume in the first instance that most people are lying to them. They may superficially give you the benefit of the doubt, but from the moment you open your mouth, they're looking for evidence that you're not being exactly straight with them. Philip Ashcroft's version of events surrounding his wife's murder, that they'd been victims of an unprovoked attack in their home, offered up enough reasonable doubt in the mind of D.I. George Dunro that he was, in all likelihood, even reconsidering whether the man in front of him was actually called Philip Ashcroft at all, so implausible were the stories he told. When asked to confirm what to the inspector seemed a wholly implausible combination of circumstances, Philip broke down in tears and admitted that he'd lied. For the second time in as many days, he promised 
that he'd be entirely honest with the investigation and tell them exactly what happened. In this, the second true version of events, Philip says that he'd returned home from band practice and within moments had started arguing with his wife. Arguments weren't uncommon between them, he said, but they never got violent. He was generally a calm and restrained man and had never laid a finger on his wife. At one point that evening, though, Gladys launched an empty glass bottle at Philip, which flew through the air and hit him on the head, smashing and causing a cut. In rage, but only to restrain her, you must understand, Philip grabbed Glynis by the neck and began choking her. He continued to choke her. Continued and continued until she became limp and lifeless on the hall floor. Dead. It had never been his intention to kill his wife. He wouldn't have hurt her for all the world and he didn't know what had come over him. In fear of the repercussions though, he set about staging what he hoped would be a plausible home invasion. He set the scene downstairs and upstairs to fit with his story threw some paint on the walls that he had in his garden shed, and then bound himself up and set off to the coopers next door to seek help. Anyone who's watched an episode of the wonderful 24 Hours in Police Custody will know, as well as I do, that laying charges against a suspect doesn't represent the end of the police's work. As we're told in nearly every episode, it's the journey from charging decision to court that represents the greatest challenge to investigators. It's their job to compile as complete a narrative of the crime as possible, supporting each assertion with evidence which, when tested in court, stands scrutiny in the eyes of the jury. With Philip's confession as to the timeline of events which led up to Glynis's death, what motivated him to do it would decide whether her death was deliberate or an unintended consequence of his outburst. Was it murder or manslaughter? Philip was adamant that it was the latter. However, D.I. Dunro and the head of Merseyside CID... Superintendent Tom Davis were clearly of the view that the killing was premeditated and therefore definitely murder. With Philip on remand awaiting trial, investigations continued into what had been the reason for Philip's fatal attack on his wife. While it certainly wasn't out of the question that, behind closed doors, the couple's relationship had been as they presented to the world, no evidence of significant previous injuries were identified at post-mortem. Speaking to family and friends, though, certainly suggested that the picture was less than rosy. Some months earlier, Glynis had confessed to her mother that she was unhappy in the marriage and expressed a desire to leave Philip. Less so at the time, but certainly now, it's acknowledged that the person at the most danger of violence at the hands of a partner is at the time they show signs of wanting to end the relationship. Had Glynis finally decided that enough was enough and she wanted to part from Philip and take her young daughter with her? Neighbours often spoke of how he doted on Rachel. Was it the thought of losing them both enough to drive Philip to such horror? There were other things that people said though, more gossip than fact, 
more a suggestion than an outright statement. It seemed that Philip had a particularly close relationship with a young girl he used to teach, Angela Page. Angela joined the band six years previously, in her first year at Sutton Manor, and almost immediately picked up the French horn. Her early teens weren't easy for her. Started at high school is tricky by definition. New social groups are formed, new social dynamics come into play. Her weight had always been an issue, but in trying to find a tribe, Angela found herself caught in the familiar trap of comparing herself to the cool kids. She tried to be part of things, tried to fit in, but the reason she couldn't, in her eyes at least, was that her body didn't match the ideal that the other girls seemed so easily to achieve. It wasn't long before the conversations Angela had with herself, in those private spaces where we openly and self-destructively discuss what we think of ourselves, led her down the road to anorexia. With her confidence rock bottom, and self-image corrupted by the world in which she found herself, she restricted her diet and celebrated that restriction, to the extent that she needed medical intervention. It's normal in such circumstances that sufferers identify and cling on to parts of their life in which they can find calm and solace, the parts of their life through in which they're able to find peace and understanding. For Angela, the brass band represented that. She could be part of something that allowed her to disappear into it, allow her to be part of something that was greater than the sum of its parts. The band also brought with it a ready-made social circle. Rehearsals were one thing, but a programme of concerts and competitions, sometimes abroad, led to a whole new sense of community. Mr Ashcroft, who was the teacher with overall responsibility of the band, had always been welcoming and encouraging her to join the group. At each stage of recovery, he was the one person who was always there, a kind and attentive teacher who was a constant and compassionate presence. Leaving Sutton High School hadn't represented the end of their closeness either. Angela remained part of the school band and also received private tuition from Glenys' father, Norman. There were more than an occasional nudge and raised eyebrow exchange between members of the band, parents, even teachers. And while there's all a number of photographs of band activities taken at concerts, rehearsals, etc., for all their closeness, there seemed few of Philip and Angela together. Those that were would see Ashcroft standing in front of a group of young musicians, a slight girl with short, dark hair on the French horn, just part of the ensemble of other players. Was the closeness between teacher and former people more than just a friendship? Could there be something in that? And the taxi driver that Mrs Parr heard pulling outside the house at around nine. Who was that for? With Angela on a trip to France with the school band, a trip that left within days of Glenys' killing, the questions for her would have to wait until her return. In the meantime, though, a call around local taxi companies unearthed something very interesting. Sometime around 9.30, cab driver John Perry picked up a single woman who flagged him down on Broadway. She has to be taken to the other side of town. Perry always noted the names of his passengers and kept a log, but it didn't ring any bells with the investigation. 
asked if he could remember anything else at all about his passenger. All he could offer was a description. A slight teenage girl with short, dark hair. Within 24 hours of returning home from France, Angela was sat in an interview room at St Helens Police Station on College Street. The taxi driver had been unable to positively identify Angela from photographs as the girl he picked up remembered where he dropped her off. It wasn't exactly on Angela's doorstep, but it was a few streets away from her home on New Street, close enough to be incriminating. Preliminary questions centred on how long she'd known the Ashcroft family, what her relationship with them was like, and what she thought of them. Admitting her fondness for them, she said she saw no suggestion that Philip would ever harm Glynis, and pressed hard the fact that it would have been so out of character for him that he must have been provoked. After her movements on the night of the killing, Angela said she spent the evening with a friend, Karen Lancaster, who she was sure would happily vouch for her with no firm evidence with which to take the interview any further, and with an alibi to corroborate, Angela was released. The freedom, however, was short-lived. Although initially saying the pair had been together, Angela's friend quickly changed her story. She said that Angela had asked her to lie for her if anyone asked where she was that night, as Angela had arranged to meet an older man, a merchant sailor, with whom she was having an affair. Armed with very few details of this mysterious sailor, police somehow, incredibly, managed to track the man down. However, for Angela, his version of events was a dammer. He said that he had been approached by Angela, who he barely knew, and offered £5 if he'd provide her with a false alibi, should anyone ask about her. Happy to oblige the young girl, he willingly accepted the £5, and that was until he was confronted by the police when he realised he'd somehow found himself slap-bang in the middle of a murder investigation, and, in those circumstances, didn't hesitate in sharing all with detectives. Confident that Angela had been present when Glynis was killed, D.I. Dunro had no hesitation in charging her as an accomplice to the murder, with a trial set for the following January. The first month of 1998 had seen both Philip and Angela in the dock for murder of the wife and mother, Glynis Ashcroft. It would be for the jury at that point to decide their guilt. If at trial, the hope of the couple was that Philip's version of events would be believed and that Angela was in no way involved, these were dashed while a remand, when a letter for that Philip was hoping to have secretly delivered to Angela was intercepted by police officers. In it, he said that he cared for her deeply and that to ensure she wouldn't be found responsible in any way, she should stick to her story and let Philip take the blame. His view was that he'd only be found guilty of manslaughter by means of diminished responsibility and would therefore be out in no time. At trial, however, the extent of Angela's relationship with Philip and her involvement on the night of Glynis's murder were dragged kicking and screaming into the limelight. 
opening at Liverpool Crown Court on the 10th of January 1988. Over the seven days of the trial, Prosecutor Michael Maguire QC led the jury through the entire background of Philip and Angela's relationship, up to the night of the killing and the part each of them played in it. Presenting love letters and cards shared between the two, as well as evidence of the pair enjoying romantic meals together, he set the scene of a love affair that had, from what was implied but never explicitly described as, starting when Angela was at school. With Angela out of education though, what might have been seen as an opportunity for their relationship to take on a more normal shape didn't happen. Philip was reluctant to simply divorce Glynis for fear she'd take his daughter Rachel with her and continuing the sequel looked less and less likely as Angela was considering leaving St Helens to join the army. Where the idea of murder came from isn't known but as revealed by Glynis's parents, a few months before his wife's killing, Philip had taken out life insurance on her to the tune of £80,000, the equivalent today of nearly a quarter of a million pounds. The story the defence presented on behalf of both defendants was one that, during the trial, seemed to change in narrative. First, Angela wasn't present at all, and Philip was solely responsible but in a fit of uncharacteristic rage. Next, Angela was present, but was sat downstairs in the lounge, unaware that Philip was unleashing uncontrollable violence on his wife. The testimony of Mrs Parr, as to the crashing and argument she heard from the Ashcroft's house on the night of the killing, made that implausible, that Angela could have sat downstairs and heard nothing. So a third explanation was offered. Angela had popped around uninvited, and caught Philip mid-murder, but left immediately. Again, testimony of a witness, this time from the taxi driver, put pay to that telling, as he remembered when dropping Angela off at home, she was carrying a red plastic bag. A bag which, when discovered on a search of her bedroom, contained one of Philip's shirts, covered in blood. Another witness, Karen Lancaster, the friend who was asked to provide a false alibi, provided testimony as to the premeditated nature of the crime. She spoke of how Angela would regularly confide that she was going to marry Philip. More significantly, she said that she'd been asked to provide an alibi prior to the killing, as well as being challenged by Angela the following day to rehearse what she would say if questioned. Across the seven days of the trial, a general tension ran through it in which, it's plain to see, provided something of a complicating factor for the jurors. To start with, Philip admitted solely being responsible for his wife's killing, that Angela played no part in it, and that it was something close to a dissociative act on his part. Angela too opened from the position of playing no part in the crime or its aftermath. But as evidence was presented which challenged this, their positions changed, with Angela admitting responsibility, not in the killing itself, but in the preparation and clean-up and attempted cover-up. If this version of events was to be accepted, though, it would run a coach and horse through Philip's version. He couldn't simultaneously allow Angela to be honest about her involvement and at the same time attest that she played no part in it. This resulted 
when Philip took the stand in him attempting to argue to the court that Angela's obsession with him was so strong that she was lying when she said she was implicated, simply to insert herself into the proceedings. Philip's position seemed to be that she'd been so besotted with him for years. She'd created a fantasy in her head that they were lovers and that she was using his purely accidental killing of his wife to try and manifest their fantasy relationship into reality. When asked if it was usual for a pupil to act out in such a fantastical way, all because of a crush on a teacher, somewhat conceitedly and with a straight face, Philip answered that it was an occupational hazard. Despite the secrecy of the jury room conversations, I think it can be said with some confidence that Philip failed to make a positive impression on the court. When their deliberations came, they took less than three hours to find Philip Ashcroft guilty of the premeditated murder of his wife, Glenys, for which he received a life sentence with a minimum term of 20 years. The court's judgment on Angela was somewhat more complicated. Their choice was whether Angela had been a willing or reluctant participant in Angela's murder. Had Philip used his influence over the vulnerable teenager to make her his accomplice? A further 90 minutes of discussions delivered her to a guilty verdict for murder. Given her age, however, Angela's sentence was to be at Her Majesty's pleasure. At Her Majesty's pleasure is a legal term which doesn't set a defined period of time for which an individual will be held. Instead, it's assumed that, with the benefit of maturity and support while incarcerated, they'll be released as and when the authorities deem them to be no longer a danger to the public. As anyone that's listened to Peak True Crime before will know, I normally visit and record at locations of the cases that I cover. As I only came up with the idea for this episode a couple of weeks notice, um, I haven't been able to make any specific trips to St. Allen's for this case. It was fascinating to look into this case because of the version my wife told me and while that was very dramatic and the bare bones of the case were there it's not quite how it happened the sort of merry-go-round of local gossip said that in fact the um, staged murder of Glynis had that she was shot in the head and that Philip too had received a gunshot wound. Now that obviously wasn't true. Um, But it's interesting that local legends took that into account because um, it was reframed as, as the injuries that Philip and Angela inflicted upon Glynis the gunshot wounds were actually <laughs> that he used a woodworking drill 
and as horrific as that is it's also utterly idiotic to think how you could realistically stage a shooting with out using a gun and that the police wouldn't know what you're up to within seconds I don't think it's um, it's unusual for rumour to take a, on a life of its own though and and quickly become an established fact. Um, you see it all the time today. About the actual facts of the case though, it's interesting. I would have I don't think the coverage would be the same today as it was, you know, thirty five years ago. And the fact that in all likelihood what actually took place is that a pupil was groomed by a teacher and that within six months of her leaving school he murdered his wife. Some of the coverage, while not exactly presenting um, an overtly sexualised picture of Angela, did use words like temptress and while there's not actual evidence that Philip and Angela were engaged in a sexual relationship, she did have conversations with a friend Karen about being on the pill and saying that it was you know, just in case. It's something that Philip strenuously denied taking place. Uh, and something that Angela wasn't questioned about in court. Thankfully, I think, because whatever role she played in Glynis's murder, she was only 17. And whatever its nature, she developed a close bond with a teacher who she'd known since she was 11. Angela was a vulnerable young girl. She battled anorexia and won. And uh, teachers are in positions of authority and power and as such should have made, I don't know, more appropriate interventions the moment it appeared that she took a shine to him. If that's at all what happened and whether she had, in fact, been groomed all along. Come here, fella. Come on, this way. This way, yeah, go this way. If, um, if this took place today, I think what happened would be called out for what it was. A child being groomed by an adult in a position of authority. Um, a man who should have been there to protect and support her through her troubles, but instead manipulated that teenage girl for entirely his own ends. There's um there's another aspect to the case that, while covered in the sidebars on the press, 
really didn't feature very much. Um, that is Glynis's daughter and Philip's daughter, Rachel. Oh, God. oh you're soggy wet now. Sorry. Um, she was a young girl, a toddler of three years old at the time. And she was in the house when these these terrible events occurred. Rachel not only lost her mother, though, and God only knows how she's going to approach any future relationship with her dad. Um, I suppose one meagre salvation might be that when the police investigated the house in the days after Glynis's murder Rachel's bedroom was the only one in the house which was left untouched that that wasn't ransacked and I don't know whether that provides some insight into the entire case really it seems likely that one of Philip's motivations for killing Glynis was a fear that if he divorced her his relationship with Rachel had changed and it seems that he he really wasn't willing to accept that that's you know that's obviously speculation and you can be sure that a whole host of other factors came into play but regardless whether she, you know Rachel was spared having to actually see her mum murdered there's no doubt that it will have changed changed her life forever in the immediate aftermath she was cared for by Philip's parents and that's something that Glynis's family fought very hard against they didn't see it as being right that his family should have care for their granddaughter. Uh, it was their view that Pamela, Glynis's twin sister, and her family should look after her. And as far as I can tell, and I'm not 100% sure, but there seems to be a few indications that this did happen they did take her into their home and she grew up with her aunt and an uncle and her cousins Rachel would be almost 40 now and I think I can only hope that she's been able to build a fulfilling and happy life for herself Philip was released from prison at the completion of his 20 year minimum turn and and I've not been able to find out anything about him I don't know where he is, what he's doing nothing at all while in prison Angela was visited regularly by a priest who was a, a friend of the family after serving 10 years of what was an, an indeterminate sentence she went to join his church and lived for 
a good long while in North Wales as part of his his community there and while she was there she met a man and they're married and they have kids and they've moved to Lancashire not to St Helens but but a different part of Lancashire and as far as I can see she's living a quite unremarkable life I think it's a really complicated case there's the brutal murder of Glynis at the heart of it the failed attempts to cover it up but there's also a 17 year old girl who over the course of her teenage years became enveloped within an inappropriate and probably very deeply manipulative relationship with a much much older man who should have been in a position of authority and nurtured her at 17 she won't be able to vote um, she won't be able to buy a drink in a pub she couldn't get a tattoo she couldn't uh, vote she couldn't she couldn't serve on a jury like the one that that convicted her of murder that's not to say that children aren't capable of committing acts of wicked cruelty we all can all think of examples of those um, it's just that if she hadn't met Philip Ashcroft she hadn't have been so vulnerable it seems unlikely that she'd have been involved in a murder in any way I don't think though the same could be said of Philip I don't think you can say with any confidence that if if he hadn't met Angela Glynis would still be alive today